leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards and stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The availability of a growing body of real-world evidence has regulators considering how clinical trials using disparate sources of data might work. Many see harnessing such information as a way to provide better insight into the safety and efficacy of drugs while reducing the cost of clinical trials. A number of issues, though, will need to be addressed as the U.S. Food and Drug Administration takes a first pass at a framework for using real-world evidence. We spoke to Nancy Dreyer, Chief Scientific Officer and Senior Vice President of Real World and Analytic Solutions for IQVIA, about real-world data, its potential to change the way clinical trials are conducted, and the challenges to applying it. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be here. We're going to talk about real-world evidence, efforts to harness large quantities of data that exist outside of clinical trials to improve decision-making about medicinal products, and the FDA's efforts to establish a framework for using real-world evidence. Let's start with some basic concepts, though. We hear the terms real-world evidence and real-world data. What do they mean? I'm so glad you asked. You know, the technical definitions you hear about real-world data is that it's data collected outside of a clinical trial or outside of an experimental setting. But you can think of this more simply as data that are collected in the course of routine medical care and other non-research settings. So this would include data from patients in terms of their evaluation of treatment response, as well as personal monitors like those that track physical activity or wearables that monitor your heart. So the data can come from a number of sources. The point is it wasn't created in the context of a clinical trial. So all that data can be used to generate real-world evidence, but unlike the randomized controlled trials, it takes much more research design experience in non-interventional studies to make effective use of real-world data so that you can draw reliable inferences. Randomized placebo-controlled clinical trials are often referred to in the regulatory world as the gold standard. There's increasing concern, though, about the limits on the way we conduct clinical trials today. What are the limitations, and where is there room for improvement? What don't they tell us? Uh, my goodness. Just, just think of how a classical randomized controlled trial works. So the question they address is, can a treatment work? 
So randomized controlled trials use optimal patients treated in highly controlled situations by expert clinicians in well-appointed clinical settings. So they're the you hedge your bets to see if there really is a benefit if you control for everything else except except the drug or the treatment that you're looking. And then the the analysis performed is assumes that every patient took the drug exactly the way they should have. So we can use these elegant con- tools to understand if a product can work, but not if it really does work in real-life settings for the diverse types of patients that doctors encounter in everyday settings. So we don't usually have randomized controlled trials in children or other vulnerable populations. Likewise, you don't see these RCT, if I can use that abbreviation, in people who smoke or are overweight or have a variety of the comorbidities that most middle-aged people have or people who don't take their medicines exactly as prescribed. So once we know that a product can work, we want to understand who exactly benefits and in what situations. And you can't really do a randomized controlled trial for every single condition of interest because you have to be, they are so narrowly controlled. So we need other tools for figuring out the broader questions Sometimes this is contrasted as the difference between efficacy and effectiveness. Effectiveness meaning what happens in real-world situations. But another, there's two other features that I wanted to call your attention to that are important when you think about real-world data versus a classical randomized controlled trial. So the classical RCTs look at a treatment and compare it to a placebo or a sham treatment. That's good for an experiment because you compare something active to nothing. But what we really want to know about, what you and I really want to know about, is is what's the best treatment for me? So I don't want to compare, I don't want data on a treatment versus uh, nothing. I want a treatment versus what I would have gotten if there wasn't this new treatment available. And I want to know about patients like me. So So they're different kinds of studies asking different questions, and they use different tools. How broadly is real-world evidence used today, and how is it used today? It's it's exciting for me as an epidemiologist who's been using real-world data for decades to see the the growing appreciation for real-world data. So let's just start with those classical clinical trials. We're actually using real-world data today to choose our sites more efficiently. So we talk about data-driven site and patient selection, where I might look at prescription data by geographical area or by institution or other data to help me make sure I go to the doctors that are likely to have the most patients of the type that I'm interested in. Now, I do that respecting the privacy of the individuals who contribute their data or whose data we can access, but I still can tell whether Mass General Hospital or another hospital or another doctor's office is seeing the kind of patients that we want for a study. So first we use it to do do more efficient trials so we get the patients, the right sites and the patients in faster and get the answer sooner. 
We're also starting to see a very exciting development in the FDA as well as the European Medicines Agency where we're taking what we call single-arm trials, like a, a trial of people exposed to a new anti-cancer drug. And we are getting comparators, not through randomization, but external comparators. So we'll look at another area with patients who have the same cancer but didn't, benefit, didn't have this treatment available. And we'll use that as the comparator or the benchmark. In 2018, we saw a new molecular entity approved for a, uh, for a rare form of cancer using this single-arm trial plus the real-world data or external comparators. So that's the landmark development. When, and we've always used real-world data for safety, so let's not, let's not forget that. When you think about the rich data sources out there, such as claims records, electronic health records, patient registries, digital health devices, and more, how accessible is this data, and how much of an issue are obstacles like interoperability or the lack of standardization so you have unstructured data? Well, you're getting right to the heart of some of the challenges of using existing data for existing real world data for research. So it's not easy to get access to patient records. And that's a good thing because if you are the patient, you want to make sure that your information is private and that it's, it's dealt with in ways that you approve of. But you also, as for part of the greater good, we want to be able to do research where we can respect the privacy of individual patient identities but learn from their experience. So we do have um, ethics reviews in, in uh, health systems and often called institutional review where a study would be reviewed and its, its plan would be reviewed carefully before any access to records would be granted. But it's a hit-or-miss process, and while we're starting to build larger and larger standing research networks, like the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is doing with PCORnet, and Sentinel has been building for the FDA, they're not as ex widely accessible as you would like. Now, you asked about interoperability, which means can all these data work together and it's a technical challenge, but I think it's one that we can overcome. So if we can get access, the, um, the technical challenges can be overcome through whether it's use of natural language processing or artificial intelligence or some old-fashioned manpower. But the bigger question I hear people asking about is how do you know if the real-world data, you get it? So assuming all these hurdles that you just mentioned are behind us. The question I hear people debating is, how do you know if the data is reliable enough for research purposes? Sometimes they call that, they ask for regulatory grade real world evidence or real world data. And it's an interesting question because it starts with being sure that what you see actually re represents what's happening. Well, for does example, something have to be done to, to validate that data? Does, does it... Aha, yes. Oh, that's what I'm hearing uh, the FDA and others ask for. And then the question is, so first we took the standards that we use for clinical trials, because that seemed like a good, as good a place as any 
And let's back up. Danny, let's come back. The 21st Century's Cures Act, passed in 2016, directs the FDA to use real-world evidence more, particularly in label expansions, and to start to build guidelines and, and come out with a plan. So there's intense focus now on how do we qualify when real-world data is good enough. So experts started with a clinical trial framework. Like the data has to be high quality, whatever that means. It has to be 100% complete. Now, that's good if you're doing an experiment and you're asking 10 questions. You want everyone answered and you want it to be right. You can spend a lot of money checking every one of those pieces of data. But if I wanted to go into XYZ health system and they agreed the research was important and they agreed to give me access to the electronic medical records, I won't expect that 100% of the data I want is available for everyone. It forces an entirely different way of, of developing a framework for figuring out whether the data is good enough, which starts with, is there data that you want there? So have been people, the tr people exposed to the treatment or the drug or the process that you're interested in, uh, did that happen at that institution? And then if you want to know whether they benefited or were harmed by the treatment, the next question you have to ha ask yourself is, would they come back to that institution? Would I find that information in those records to know if they did benefit or were harmed? So is the follow-up data there? Do they come to the same places? And there are a series of practical questions you can ask like that. And then you come to the one you just raised. Well, if it says somebody has breast cancer, for example, how do I know that's right? Now, if you were using health insurance claims data, for example, and you were an experienced researcher familiar with those data, you'd know that one mention of a, breast, of a visit for breast cancer could be a what we call a rule-out diagnosis. That was the reason for the visit, or it could be because you, in fact, have breast cancer. So when you use health insurance claims, you learn to look for patterns. I don't want to see just one diagnosis. I want to see a diagnosis, a follow-up, and some treatment. Then I know they had the condition. So it's there's a great deal of interest in looking at the endpoints, and that seems to be the biggest area for validation. So um, understanding if what we see, for example, in EMR is really an accurate representation and what we need to be confident in that. You, you alluded before to the single-arm cancer trial. I, I know certainly in the rare disease space we've seen uh, similar uses of, of natural history studies against a, a single arm. I think most people think of real-world evidence in the context of things like post-market studies or label expansion. Right, right. But what's the potential to use real-world evidence to support the approval of a new drug? That's, I think, the most exciting frontier for us. So as I mentioned before, 2018 saw the first approval I know of in the U.S. for a new molecular entity. This was for metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma. But think about how we're moving to personalized medicine. I mean, it used to be you'd describe a tumor by the anatomical region, right? So we used to think of 
breast cancer compared to lung cancer. But we've become much more sophisticated than that in terms of our targeted treatments. So now we talk about HER2-positive breast cancer, and we talk about the genetic makeups of various tumors because that's the treatments are targeted to specific, very specific types of tumors. And the more specific we get, the less likely it is that, first of all, we can afford the time and the expense to do the randomized trial. But even more important, as a patient, if you have a disease where you're facing imminent death, you're not going to enroll in a trial where it's up to a flip of a coin whether you get a treatment that could save your life or, or placebo. So if you forget the cost and expense incurred to whether it's a drug company or, or the public good, patients and doctors don't want to put their, their patients in trials when there's hope for a treatment when you might not have had none. So as we get understand more about the combination of personal characteristics of the patient and the condition they have, the greater will be the need for these single-arm trials and then to see if we can get the same appropriate comparators from existing data or even from parallel data collection in another place where the study isn't being done. But the idea that the randomized controlled trial is the main tool, or two RCTs are the main tools to get a new drug approved, has to change. I'd like you to talk about another concept here, randomized pragmatic trials. I suspect some listeners may not be familiar with that term. Can you explain what a randomized pragmatic trial is and, and how it structurally compares to a randomized clinical trial? Absolutely. That's um, something I'm very interested in. So a pragmatic randomized controlled trial starts where patients are randomly assigned treatment, just like a, a classical randomized controlled trial. So the treatment decision is not up to the patient and the doctor. It's, up, it's externally created through a randomization schedule. Pragmatic trials are different from classical RCTs, is that the treatment is, is randomized to the point of care. The endpoints or outcomes are studied are, are pragmatic. They're those that make a difference to patients and conditions. So we look at real disease occurrence rather than surrogate marker, markers of disease or modest changes in biomarkers that may or may not make a difference in a patient's ability to function. Also, pragmatic randomized trials don't use blinded treatment and they don't use placebos. So they tend to compare a treatment of interest to what you would have gotten otherwise. So they're tremendously important for health insurance programs because they want to understand where this treatment would fit in the, the treatment pathways they approve and who they should pay for and who they shouldn't. So the pragmatic trial are really naturalistic studies that start off with randomization to assure you get a balance, a good balance between the, the experimental treatment group and the comparators. And then you watch what happens over time. One of the attractions to the industry in these types of trials is cost. How does the cost of a randomized pragmatic trial compare to a, a randomized clinical trial? Um, Normally, I'd make you guess, but I'll, I'll make it simple for you. If you don't use blinded 
drug. That means you can either supply it if it's an experimental drug or patients can pick it up from the pharmacy and you just pick up the differentials in the co-payments. And generally, the cost, believe it or not, is half. So 50% of when you do a pragmatic randomized trial versus a classic randomized trial. And we see this over and over again. And if you imagine then, so let's start that premise. I just cut the cost in half by some simple design changes. The future of real-world data in pragmatic randomization is that you could randomize your patients through a clinic visit or even just through a pharmacy and then do all the follow-up within a health institution using electronic medical records or health insurance claims. And we're starting to see some interesting validations showing what endpoints can be reliably measured that way. And in those scenarios, the cost can be something along the lines of 50% of, of, sorry, of 10% of uh, what it would have been in a classical RCT. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has until December 2018 to develop a framework for real-world evidence to support approval of a new indication for an approved drug and to support or satisfy post-approval requirements. This grows out of a mandate of the 21st Century Cures Act. You've authored a white paper on this topic. What do you think a framework will look like? Are there essential elements you'd point to such a framework would include? Well, I, I published a paper in the journal Therapeutic Innovation and Regulatory Science early this year in an attempt to offer some pragmatic advice for how to evaluate real-world data and in what situations it would be good enough. So instead of trying to adapt the clinical trials framework to real-world data, I propose some lessons learned from decades conducting epidemiologic research, and I gave them a series of, of four questions. You know, first, when you're approaching a data set to, to know if, if it would be good enough for your purposes, I ask, are there su su uh, sufficient numbers of patients of interest likely to be available from this resource? Then I, so whether it's because they had a treatment or because they have a condition or because they're a certain ethnicity or age, you want to know if the patients that you're interested in are in the data. And then you want to know how well the data characterize the must-have data that you need, which is generally the treatments and outcomes of interest. Third, you want to ask what's the likelihood that the patients have been followed in the data for the desired length of time. You know, do I want to know if this treatment causes, if, if your hip is good for 20 years? Well, what's the likelihood I'll have 20 years of follow-up? You might want to change your research question. And then the fourth question I ask them is, think about the potential for bias. And bias I use to mean systematic error. So consider how much systematic error there is and how much that could obscure your results, your expected effects. So what we find is the messier the data or the less accurate, the more, no the more noise there is, the harder it is to find small benefits. So if a, if a drug might improve my blood pressure, my hypertension by 10%, that's hard to see in a real-world data. 
But what we often see, in, for example, in these cancer studies, is drugs that double or triple your chance of survival. So you think about how much bias there could be, and could that be enough to obscure a doubling or a tripling of a benefit? Hard to see that. And then last, I, I have come to appreciate the, the importance of validations of certain endpoints and understanding, wanting to be sure that they, in fact, represent what we think they do. How do you expect the use of real-world data to change the way drug developers think about the studies they conduct? The best scenarios will be trying to satisfy multiple stakeholders in the same study. So, for example, think about those pragmatic trials. If you could do a pragmatic trial and understand whether a drug works and how it compares to the other treatment choices, you're giving valuable information to regulators. You're also giving valuable information to payers. Similarly, the external comparators for those single-arm trials, they help they, I think they can achieve the same purpose of satisfying regulators, but helping clinicians and patients and payers understand how people are doing right now, today, and what this new treatment would add. Nancy Dreyer, Chief Scientific Officer at IQVIA. If you'd like to learn more about the issue and meet Nancy, she'll be speaking at the DIA Real World Evidence Conference in San Francisco on November 5th and 6th. You can find more information about that at diaglobal.org. Nancy, thanks so much for your time today. And thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.